0: Well, tonight I want to talk with you about someone that Jesus thinks was very, very special. I'm going to read you what Jesus said in Matthew 11:11. He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. As I was looking through this the other day, it just struck me. Jesus, at the point in time that he arrives on the earth, he's saying, this is the greatest man who has ever lived. I don't know why I haven't paid that much attention to it, but but Jesus believed. Now think of who he's comparing him to. He was a son of David, he knows King David. He knows all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He knows everyone in history, every king, every prophet, every priest, every person who has ever lived. And Jesus is saying, this is the greatest man who has ever lived. So I said to myself, I I better pay attention. What is it that made him so great, and why does Jesus say he's the greatest man who has ever lived? See if we could come up with a list of why John was so great. I'll start reading in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So at that time the word of god comes to him he's in the wilderness john was born into a priestly family his father was a priest he was one of the top echelon of priests so he actually got to go into the temple itself which is where he saw an angel and the angel told him that he and his wife were going to have a child he and his wife were very old and he said, basically, how do I know what you're saying is true? And the angel said, you'll know it's true because you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. And so Zechariah was mute for nine months. When John is born, suddenly he can speak, which makes everyone pay attention, wondering, wow, what is this child going to become? So everyone in the temple is talking about it, among the Levites and the priesthood, and everyone among the people of Judea where they lived. This is an amazing thing that has happened. This elderly couple is having a child. It reminds everyone of someone that happened to before. Anyone remember the father of the faithful? Abraham, thank you. Abraham and Sarah were old. They were getting up there in years, and they had a miraculous child. They wonder what this child is going to be like. The child grows up. We don't know exactly what happened, but he doesn't become a priest working in the temple. That was what you would expect the son of a priest to become, is a priest working in the temple. When we find him here in Luke chapter 3, he's out in the wilderness. He has left the temple. The Word of God comes to John and essentially tells him what to do. He goes and starts proclaiming a baptism of repentance to have your sins forgiven. It's important to understand why that was such a big deal, if you were living at the time of John, and let's just say you sinned. Maybe some people in the room understand what it is to have a major fall to do something that's pretty bad, and you feel bad about it, and you want your sin. Forgiven. You want your sin forgiven. There was only one place to get your sins forgiven. That was at the temple. There was only one way to have your sins forgiven. That's to take an animal and go to the temple. So there you are. You're humble. You've raised your sheep. It has to be a spotless sheep. It has to be one that without any flaws. And so you take that sheep and you go to the temple. And you, sh- you show up at the temple with your sheep. And you're met by a priest and you say look I, I, I'd like you to sacrifice this sheep for me so that I can have my sins forgiven. He says be glad to help you with that. But that sheep's not going to do. He said what, what's wrong with my sheep? I can tell it's not healthy. No, what do you mean it's not healthy? I I, I raised it. There's nothing wrong with this sheep. I'm a priest. I'm telling you, the sheep's not healthy. You're going to need to buy one of our sheep. Oh, seriously. Sir, I... I, I, I look, you want to buy one of our sheep? I'm busy. You want your sins forgiven? Buy one of our sheep. Oh, Okay, alright. I'll, I'll buy one of your sheep. So you go over and, and uh, there's a, a man selling sheep there. And you say, okay, I, I've got a denarius. I've got a day's wage. I say, oh, we, we don't take we don't take denarius here. You have to go to the money changer first over at the end. Money changer. Yeah, yeah, we, we have to have shekels here. We can't have a, you know, we don't want that Roman money. Well, we'll have to change it, leave it, leave it at the end. So you go and pay an exorbitant rate to exchange your denarius, which is what everyone's using to, for shekels so you can buy this sheep. And they say, well, we'll take your sheep. And we'll give you a trade-in for one that we believe is healthy. Okay, so they they take advantage of you there. But finally you have your sheep and now this guy goes and he sacrifices your lamb, which is actually not the one you brought. He sells yours to someone else. But after you finish the process and he has you lay your hands on the head of the sheep and then he sacrifices the sheep, the sheep dies and... He says, okay, you can go now. Sins are forgiven. And you walk out of there. How are you feeling? Not so good, are you? You went with a humble heart to try to get your sins forgiven. And you just kind of feel like you've been taken. Like you got taken advantage of. It is into this scenario That God tells John, I want you to go and I want you to start baptizing people for repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. That's not going to go over very well because there's a monopoly down here at the temple. There's only one place to get your sins forgiven. But God tells John, I want you to go and I want you to baptize people in the river for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, John, he does it, and what he finds is that people are very responsive. Because when you go to John, he's having them confess their sins, and then he's baptizing them, or his disciples are baptizing them, and somehow they feel like this man, because he's a righteous man, Because he cares, he wants to follow God's law. They don't feel taken advantage of. Is he charging anything? He's not charging anything. And very quickly, more and more people keep coming to John. Huge crowds are coming to John to be baptized by him. And I want to read now a little bit about what John was like. Starting in Matthew chapter 3, you have to skip around a bit to piece this puzzle together about John. Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make The way straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now you would imagine that before long, this next verse is going to happen. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's interesting that Jesus also uses that term to describe the administration in Jerusalem. In fact, when Jesus is at the temple, he says, My house should be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. You have made it a robber's den. They were doing what I'm describing to you. They were just taking advantage of everybody, and they didn't care at all about the people. They just wanted to make money. So John calls them a brood of vipers. Let's just think about that. What is a brood of vipers? It's a nest. A brood means actually a children, sons of serpents, poisonous serpents. You are a brood of vipers. What are some of the th- reasons you think that Jesus might have said John is the greatest man who has ever lived? What are some things about John that we just have discovered? He. He is a very righteous man. By the way, the reason John was able to do this forgiveness of sins was because he was a priest. Remember, I told you he was born of a priestly family, but he left the temple. He left that administration. Probably we can understand why. He was saying, look, you guys are crooks. It's nothing but corruption. I'm not going to be part of this. He goes to the wilderness and... God speaks to him and he says, Look, you are a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he actually tells him something else. He says, You are going to know because the Messiah is actually going to come to you to be baptized. John was listening, he was hearing the voice of God and he was obeying it. Qualities what character qualities of John would you say that he had? He had integrity. He was big on repentance. This idea. In fact, uh, when Jesus starts his ministry, we read him saying the same thing: "Repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent." He, God's voice he obeyed. He obeyed. Yes, he obeyed. He said something's wrong here. I'm going. I'm going to the wilderness. And then when God spoke to him, he told him to do something that was way out of line. Uh, We don't hear of anyone else ever baptizing people in the water for forgiveness of their sins. Never been heard of before. God says, this is what I want you to do. He said, okay. Knowing he's going to make some enemies. And he does make some enemies. He makes quite a few enemies. They do not like the fact that all these people are going to, to John. They have a monopoly there in Jerusalem and they are offended. They can't argue too much because he's a priest. God really set this up very uniquely so that he was going to be the forerunner, the messenger who was going to prepare the way for Jesus. When it says to make your path straight, to um, fill in the valleys, to level the hills, what is he talking in poetic language, but he's talking about not physical geography, but when kings would come to town, you would do that. You'd fill in the potholes. So when someone of high rank is coming, you're trying to make everything smooth for them. You're trying to make it look like a place that they would want to be. God is talking about people's hearts here. You're gonna smooth the way. John is making his path straight. Jesus is coming after people's hearts. He's coming after their hearts, their allegiance, their loyalty. And John is helping him by repentance, having them get rid of this burden of sin. They go to the temple, but it's not helping. Everyone comes away from the temple feeling just as bad as as you did when you got there. You know, you checked the box, you did what what the law said to do, what God's law said which was you took your animal to sacrifice, but you came out of there feeling like you'd been taken advantage. There was no righteousness. There's something about confessing your sins. You don't want to do it to unrighteous people. It doesn't seem to help. How is someone who's a crook going to help you get rid of your sins? It doesn't have the right feeling. By going out to John in the wilderness, first of all, they had to make the trip. It was... 15 miles from Jerusalem. It was a bit of a trip. They probably had to find a place to stay. They had to get into the water. There's something humbling about baptism, right? Something very humbling about confessing your sins. This was preparing the way for the Lord. John is single-minded. He's very focused. He's not getting sidetracked. You can't bribe him. He's a righteous man. This is so unusual in Israel for a priest to be righteous that the people are flocking to him. He also gives up the pleasures of the world. There's something about his austerity, his simpleness, his simple diet, his clothing. Camel's hair is not known to be very comfortable. Well, let's start reading John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And the word became flesh. I'm in verse 14 now. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So they're asking him who he is. He's saying, I'm not the Christ. What they're asking him here is, are you Elijah reincarnated? The answer is no. So this is something interesting, and I want to pause here, because he says, What do you say about yourself? And this is going to be very interesting and very necessary for each one of us to be able to answer that question. So I want us to take a pause, and I want you to imagine the religious police are coming to you, and they're going to knock on your door tonight. And they're going to say, who are you? What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? Think about how you might answer that. John has a verse. He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I would probably answer that in a similar way. I'm someone who takes the Word of God and tries to make people understand in a deeper level so that they are more attracted to the Savior. They want to read the Word. They want to know Him. But what do you say about yourself? See, Many of us use negative words to describe ourselves. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death? It's death comes first. I wonder why, because most of us are speaking death. What do you say about yourself? Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm such a failure. The things that you say about yourself are very, very important. And it's very important how you see yourself. One of the reasons I believe John was the greatest man up to this point who had ever lived was because of the way he saw himself. He does not waver here when they come to ask him, So I'm, I'm not the Christ. Well, who are you? Why are you baptizing? You notice he doesn't really answer that question. See, they're, they're upset that he's baptized. They want to know what legitimacy, what validation, what badge, who, who, who's permitting you to do this? He's saying, there's one coming after me. This is my role. I am one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So let's pause and take a few minutes and think about, what do I say about myself? When they, if they would come to ask me tonight, what do you say about yourself? Can I have an answer like John the Baptist has? What is my calling? What do I say? And it can be general, it can be specific. But I want you to take some time now and think about that.